This week's podcast is sponsored by Direction. Good afternoon, everyone. It's Investing with IBD podcast. Welcome back. It's Justin Nielsen, and it's uh, our 200th episode. This is a big deal. So, Arusha, you were there from the very beginning. Uh, Arusha Paris, of course, our O'Neill Global Advisors Portfolio Manager. Uh, so, congratulations on uh, making it this far. And I think I'm almost at 100 episodes myself. So, or, yeah, yeah, so yeah. I'm getting there. Four time, years time ago. Flies. Almost four years ago. Uh, so, February 2019 is when uh, you started this up. Uh, yeah, you remember, the, the, you remember way back then when you used to be in the studio and have yeah, when it was all professionals, right? Yeah, yeah. before yeah. before things that turned. Well, well we're still few, the, well. The first few episodes was was uh, with Chris Gessel. Yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah. Because you couldn't find anyone else, right? It was like uh, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, good, come, come on this new thing. Really, it'll be fun. But hey, now we have some great guests that we've gotten, and including today, we have David Keller with us. Uh, David Keller is a CMT. He is a chief market strategist at StockCharts.com, and he has uh, quite a bit of information that he has available at his website, MissBehavior.com. It's great to have you, David. Thanks a lot for being here with us today on our 200th episode. Yeah, thanks, Justin. Thanks, Arusha. Good to see you guys. Congrats. That's a, that's a pretty awesome run, and well done with the show. Yeah. So now you you also have a show that you do after the close every day, the final bar. You know how many episodes have you done on that one? Uh, that you know? as you were as you're celebrating your 200th one, I have absolutely no idea how many episodes we've done. It feels like 2,000 though. So I, yeah, you do it every day. So yeah. it's, uh, yeah. it's a it's a different it's a different animal. Yeah, we do it we do it every weekday after the close, and so they they're a blur of sorts. But it is a I've learned that it it's made me a better investor to check in on the same set of things every day to just reinforce the lessons that, yep. you know, we, we've all sort of learned over time. So I, I've enjoyed it a great deal for sure. Yeah. And, and you know, there's something to be said for that routine. Uh, you know, our founder at yeah. Investors Business Daily, Bill O'Neill, he used to talk about the, the pilots, you know, pilots have a checklist that they go through and that checklist is so important unless you want to crash and most pilots don't want to do that. So, uh, <laughs> you know, th th there, yeah. there really is, you know, something to be said for routines, checklists, you know, whatever it takes for you to make sure you're hitting all those things. And, and there's a certain amount of discipline that comes along with it. So we'll certainly talk a little bit about that today. We're going to talk about the markets. Uh, interesting day in the market uh, today, Wednesday, January 18th, 2023 is uh, when we're taping this. So we'll talk about what happened in, in there. But also, I think you've got a great uh, topic that you're going to share with us, David, and the whole psychology and, and specifically two things that are really interesting in behavioral finance, the confirmation bias and the endowment bias. So uh, those will be interesting to talk about. And then David has also got some stocks he's going to share with us. So let's go ahead and start it off with a look at the markets. Uh, David, where would you like to start? What index uh, have you been focusing on the most lately? Yeah, I always start with the S&P. One of my mentors, uh, Ralph Akinpora, who I know, okay. and you guys probably know pretty well. I mean, just uh, we just had him on the podcast. Uh, yeah, he, I mean, he he taught literally most of us how to chart in some small or large way, I feel like, in our Absolutely. careers. But he, he told me early on in my career, if you know nothing else about what's going on, know the daily chart of the S&P 500, because we, we, we try to get cute with all these other inputs at the end of the day, analyze the trend, and there's so much you can learn from it. So I mean, for me, thinking of the S&P, I, I, I feel like future textbooks in market analysis, if 
if uh, we would have a new version of how to make money in stocks, I hope it would feature the last two years of the S&P or, or maybe the last two years of Alphabet as a good example, right, of one year in clear accumulation phase and one year in clear distribution phase. Um, yeah. We've seen that pattern along the way down and this latest rally that we've seen sort of October, November, December, once again, hitting a trend line. If you draw a trend line over the highs of the last 12 months, we, we just keep managing to rally up into resistance and failing. And I, I feel like today's action with, a, you know, one and a half percent or so down on, on the major averages is just the latest piece of evidence reinforcing the fact that uptrends and, and, and rallies are getting exhausted right where you'd expect them to get exhausted if we're in a bearish phase. So I, it, it leaves me cautious and skeptical as opposed to a feel good sentiment leading into our discussion today, I would say. Yeah. yeah, it's uh, it's funny, David. It uh, I was talking to one of my mentors uh, in in the house, and I I said the same thing. I was like, you know, today's action really pot potentially could be telling us that nothing's changed from the last year. Right. It, it sucks <laughs> us in slowly, sucks us in to the trend line, to the two hundred day moving average, and now might be methodically just you know distributing uh, more and more shares here. So we, until that behavior until that trend truly has changed uh you yeah. have to assume the the trend and the the character is still intact yeah i was taught nothing good happens below the 200 day moving yes. average i forget which of my mentors told me that but you know it's and so i i you know for me it it's so easy to get caught into the short termism and just the flickering ticks of the market the day-to-day -day movements and what I learned, you know, long time following, you know, IBD, I, I used to get it as I, just, I have to share the story. I used to when I was learning how to chart and how to do this, I would buy IBD, the paper IBD at the newsstand, probably 59th and Madison. Every okay. morning I'd get it and open up. And what it reminded me was regardless, this was like oh, 2000, 2001, 2002, 3, 4, whether the market was going down, whether the market was going up, there were always stocks that tended to be with pretty constructive setups. Mm -hmm. And I think we've seen that here today, right? I mean, even though the market is struggling and you find our growth oriented benchmarks are really struggling to get above those resistance levels. What's encouraging to me as an equity investor is there are there are equities that are actually setting up pretty well and are outperforming and are making new highs. And I, so that is a that is a good thing that's happening at a, at a time when I, I agree. I think the market's still very much showing signs of distribution more than accumulation over the long term. Well, and I guess that's one of the things that felt a little bit different this time is, mm -hmm. you know, whereas before there was just really this kind of narrow Okay, like last year, if you weren't oil and gas, it was like, oh, yeah. who cares? Uh, or yep. coal, you know, all of those things. Um, this felt like the breadth was, you know, getting a little bit better lately. And so I think that, you know, was maybe making the optimism uh, antennas come up a little bit more. So do yeah. you think that's still the case? Do you think we're maybe closer to the end of all these fake outs and, you know, rallies up to resistance and failures? Uh, yeah, what what do you say to that? That's the question, Justin. I think you're. I think you're right. I think this October through January has been more of a broad advance than we've seen previously over the last 12 months, for sure. And a lot of the breadth indicators that I analyze are, are sort of backing that up, right? The advanced decline line on the New York Stock Exchange has already gone above its December peak, while the S&P has not quite done that yet. Um, mid caps and small caps, uh, the breadth lines are all breaking out. Um, I think it's 60 some 60 percent probably of the S&P members are above their 50-day moving average. That's more than half. That's good. And, and so I think you're finding stocks that are participating more than uh, more than previously and not just in energy. Right. It's in it's in others. It's consumer discretionary. It's even staples. 
up until today when a lot of them took a, a quite a bath here, Kraft Times and others coming off the peaks. But generally speaking, a lot of stocks have been participating. Uh, and so I think that to me has been more and more of a sign of encouragement that you're seeing more and more stocks participate. But it reminds me that I don't think we have a risk problem. I don't think we have an issue finding opportunities because I'm finding charts that are working. I think it's more of a benchmark problem. I think our biggest issue is our benchmark is geared toward mega cap growth stocks. Yeah. That is holding the benchmarks down. So if the benchmark, if the S&P was weighted like it was in 1980, when industrials were the number one sector or 1960, when materials were the number one sector, the S&P probably looks very, very different, right? It looks a lot yeah. more constructive. So I could see a scenario where energy, where industrials, where materials actually do just fine, but our benchmarks still look like they're in bear market territory because it's the Microsofts, Amazons, and others that are sort of holding things down. It's it's a it's a leadership rotation in a way that I, I certainly haven't seen in, in my time in the markets to this degree. So yeah. with that kind of scenario, do you switch to like an RSP, which is more the equal weighted S and P five hundred to to get uh, a little bit of a, a better view so on what's going you on? You could, you could, Arusha, right? So you could mm -hmm. look. One of the ratios I like to look at is the RSP to the SPY, which is okay. basically looking at equal weighted versus cap weighted. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. That has certainly been favoring the equal weighted side of it for quite some time because. It's not the mega cap tech consumer names that are leading. It's sort of the other thing, the cyclicals and some of the defensive sectors. Um, and so that ratio has been going up. So it reminds me to get away from mega cap and lean more into the large mid cap space, lean away from growth and, and more into the value space. I think for those of us that have been doing, I mean, I haven't been doing it that long, 20, 23 years running now. Mm -hmm. um, but but certainly, I think for, for investors that are just learning to invest in the last five to 10 years, which I'm sure a lot of your viewers are, they haven't seen an environment where rates have remained elevated. They haven't yeah. seen an environment where equal weighted kind of works over cap weighted for an extended period of time. They haven't seen a time when value outperforms growth. Like we saw from 2000 to 2005 or 2006, value did a lot better than growth did coming out of the tech bubble. And I don't know, I don't know if it'll be that significant, but I certainly see that a lot of younger investors, if you're bullish, it's we buy the growthy stuff, the stuff that's going to work in a bull market phase. This is a different kind of bull market phase. And I think a lot of investors have experienced and I, it's a good reminder to focus on uh, you know, things like the IBD and others that, that appropriately recognize strength and focus on sector and industry strength and the composite score that combines all of those, I think that'll lead you in the right direction more than more than not. And I would also say that they haven't seen a bear market. It, 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 it started <laughs> the last 10 issue, years. Right? Right? It's a, and I was, it's so funny, maybe a month or two months since, I mean, early first quarter of 2022, I get people asking me about buying ideas and I'm like, listen, like I've, I've been <laughs> through a couple of these. Yeah. They last a lot longer than you think. And, yeah. and, the and, and Walt Deemer, who's the technical analyst yeah. at Putnam, and I mean, fantastic story from the 1974 low where the portfolio manager keeps coming in his office asking when to buy. And he said, the time to buy is when you don't come in my office, right? The time to buy is when you don't want to. And so it's like, and so that's so what I've seen. I've seen people yeah. all the way down, just looking for the bottom, looking for the bottom. And when you can't imagine owning stocks, that's when a bear market really starts to really wrap up in a meaningful way. Um, so I, I think 2022 has probably been a, a great learning experience, hopefully with not too much negative returns for, for a lot of newer investors. Right. You know, one more thing I wanted to look at, because you did mention the fact that lately we were seeing kind of more new highs happen. And mm. uh, one of the things we look at is... Uh, Arusha can type in NYEXG into MarketSmith, and this will look at the NYSE, and it'll pull up at the bottom here. We'll see 
the new highs versus the new lows, a 10, a 10 day moving average, you know, right at the bottom. And you can see how the pink line is the new lows. And I mean, that's just been dominating for 2022, yeah. more new yeah. lows and the new highs was just kind of, you know, flat there. And there were a couple times where you saw a crossover uh, or they would, they would kind of meet each other and then the new lows would just end up, you know, go, going back up. So this yeah. is the first time it feels like there's been a little bit of a distance between the new highs uh, that 10 day moving average of like, the new highs getting above the 10 day average of the new lows. So um, I, I just wanted to make sure that we kind of address that as well as just one more indicator since you mentioned it earlier. Yeah. And, and you certainly need to see, I always, I always say that in an, in a bullish phase, you need an expansion in new highs, right? You need, even if the indexes aren't making new highs, you need those leadership names that are really emerging. And in parts of 2022, you saw bits of that, right? Like energy in the first half of the year, um, late, you know, more, more recently, you've seen like some industrials that have done well, charts like Alta, which have had pretty good runs. But at the end of the day, you're like, you need more and more stocks making new highs. We're just starting to see that. Are we seeing enough for me to declare this is the most obvious bull market move ever? No. And, and that's why I think it's still a big question mark. Right? So the market has rallied, unfortunately for all of us, way too similar to some of those previous bear market rallies. So I think you're you're right at that point where conditions look different. Breadth indicators are one certain area of the of the technical toolkit, which I think has certainly been flashing more of a bullish signal than it has previously. And that is that is, that is not, uh, I think, without without noticing for sure. So, Dave, talk talk a little bit more about the the routine and the toolkit. Are, are you starting with the indexes? Essentially, a top to bottom kind of approach: indexes, yeah. indicators, sectors, stocks, or stocks and then upwards. Yeah. So, I I tend to do a little of both, and and my my process is probably more top down and uh, for for most of it. But then I, I spent too much time at Fidelity to not think bottom up, I guess. So yeah, it was yeah. like pounded into my head the Peter Lynch methodology that no matter what's going on, like there's some stock somewhere that is working and focus on that. Um, but for me, it starts high level, right? And it, and it starts for me an overall assessment of risk. Do I want to be, when I always think of it, do I want to be leaning into risk or leaning away from risk, right? Because I don't think it's a, it's not a faucet. It's not I'm 100% invested or I'm 0% invested. Right. We have a lot more flexibility to, to take on risk or take off risk based on what we've seen. So for me, that's that kind of top-down market trend analysis for me using weekly data that I update every week at the close, which tells me, I mean, think of it as like the Sunday IBD, like the big one that you want to pay attention to. Like right. that's your marker and, and look from week to week whether or not that's changed. For me, that's Friday at the close that I do that. But for but also, I think having a good bottom up process is really is really important. Years ago, I, I was probably one of the early MarketSmith subscribers because it worked really well on your iPad. So yeah, I could mm -hmm. set a scan for stocks making new uh, relative highs and new relative lows. So I would flip them. This is when most things did not work well on an iPad. I remember riding the ferry in Boston and, uh, and, and going through that. And I still to this day have adapted that methodology. So every morning I'm looking at stocks making new three month highs and three month lows just to make sure I capture the leadership. And, and so for me, something like home builders, which whether or not you think it should work, it is working, right? Gold yeah, rocks, right. which had been so beaten down. It's like, we can debate whether or not gold should be good, but the charts are starting to work. And for me, a regular routine of looking at that list has been super helpful to not miss opportunities that, that, would, that would probably be missed otherwise.
Mm-hmm. Well, you know, before we kind of finish this segment up, uh, let's talk a little bit more about the sectors because you, you mm-hmm. did mention, I mean, it seemed like industrials were the ones that were really kind of coming on a little yeah. bit stronger. I mean, we saw the Dow Jones industrial average, which is like, when do we look at the Dow? You know, all of a sudden yeah. that was the index to follow for a while, um, yeah. you know, looking much stronger than all the others. Um, so, and you mentioned home builders, you mentioned, I mean, the gold, miners, metals, you yeah. know, materials, all of these things. Um, what what kind of sector strength are you seeing? Is it is it broad? I mean, there's still a lot of growth that's been just pummeled. Uh, is yeah. some of that coming back or do you still see it in more of the cyclical? Yeah, so I, I tend to think of it a couple of different ways. So we, I think there are clearly sector themes and I think it goes back to what we talked about with leadership. When you, I mean, for me, one of the most important ratios one of the charts that I looked at a lot last year was a chart of the 10-year yield, 10-year right. treasury yield, and the ratio of value versus growth. And when rates are elevated, and certainly when they're inclining, growth tends to underperform, right? Just because their future earnings just look a lot less attractive when you when you price them back to today. When rates are going up, value tends to do better, right? It's more of a, a, a better environment for them. So, you know, I while rates have certainly come down quite a bit, if you think about what the Fed has talked about doing, while they are certainly talking about talking about tapering things off, they're still not right. I mean, I, I think yeah. we're still pretty close to another rate hike among potentially multiple ones here in the first half of the year. So if you think rates remain elevated to some degree, which I think they do, it's just not a great environment for growth uh, stocks and, and as a result, growth sectors. So I would say if you look at industrials, if you look at materials, look at energy, those are the MEI sectors, as I would call them. That's where a lot of the strength has been. It has been in other areas of the market, though. And so you've had a stretch where healthcare actually did very, very well and, and mm-hmm. outperformed uh, just beautifully. So I, I often tell people um, what I think one of the great values of technical analysis and chart analysis, which, again, I think you guys do such a great job of, of demonstrating a holistic approach that has a fundamental and a technical component, which I 100 percent agree with. The benefit of the technical is you don't have to worry about what should work or what right. might work. You yeah. focus on what is working. And I think if you look at where the relative performance has come from, it's in some of those value oriented sectors. And I, I would be inclined to continue to focus on those for opportunities, but also open yourself up to a Logitech in technology, which is just kind of bucking the trend and doing well. Right. There are names out there that despite what the sectors are doing, they're having these really good runs. And so I think making sure that you focus on on the trends and the, and the signals uh, embedded in price, I think, is uh, is paramount here. Mm-hmm. Well, let's uh, go ahead and take a break real quick. And when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about kind of that psychological part and specifically the confirmation bias and the endowment bias. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with David Keller. Trading Apple, sometimes you get the bear. Sometimes it gets you. Single stock daily leveraged and inverse ETFs from Directions. Before investing, carefully consider a fund's objectives, risk, charges, and expenses contained in the prospectus at Direction.com. Read carefully. Welcome back to the Investing with IBD podcast. It's our 200th episode, and it's Justin Nielsen, your host, along with Arusha Paris, O'Neill Global Advisors Portfolio Manager, who was at the very first start, episode number one of of the podcast, and uh, has been almost here every day since. And of course, our special guest, David Keller. He's Chief Market Strategist at StockCharts.com. He also has a website, marketmisbehavior.com. So that's a good place to check out his insights. And one thing I just wanted to kind of get back to from our last segment uh, to kind of start this one out with is, I mean, you're talking about the Fed and what what the Fed is doing. And, you know, the 
there there sometimes seems to be this disconnect because you look at the 10-year treasury and the fed is saying oh look our terminal rate is what what is it now 5.1 or whatever and the 10-year treasury um i mean that went down today and so there seems to sometimes be this disconnect between what the fed is projecting that they're going to do and what everyone thinks they're going to do but also what investors are kind of i guess making their making their decisions based on their buying and what is being shown on the charts so can you talk maybe a little bit about that disconnect yeah um and i was i was talking with uh tony dwyer who's uh, at canaccord genuity i had him on my show last week and he's a fantastic market strategist and we were talking about the fed and just the you know thinking through the next 12 months and what to expect and, and certainly the message we've gotten has been that the fed is rotating from a a, a tightening period or restrictive period to to sort of wrapping that up not many of us have gone through a lot of those. And I think one of the lessons I was taught early on was don't fight the Fed. That was one of the mm -hmm. first things that was pounded in my head and stock picking, stock analysis 101, don't fight the Fed. Mm -hmm. And then I feel like very soon after I was taught, don't fight the tape. That probably was taught to me first because I have more of a technical orientation. And, and most of the time that actually fits together, right? The, you, mm -hmm. you have a sense of what the Fed is doing. The market is sort of interpreting that and anticipating that in a, in a fairly constructive way and things sort of make sense. This is one of those weird times where those two things are actually in disagreement. So if you if you think don't fight the Fed, in my opinion, you think about the terminal rate, you think about the fact that while inflation has slowed, it's still pretty high relative to what everyone says they want it to be, which means the Fed is not done kind of being hawkish to the point that is probably going to be negative for risk assets. So for me, it tells me to be more defensive, be more cautious, certainly leaning away from risk in general. On the other side, don't fight the tape from October through January. You've seen incredible strength. And on a day like today, you see bonds rallying in a pretty big way, pushing yields lower. Um, you know, I, I, and I, I think uh, the, the, the other um, sort of trading maxim I was taught was the, the reasons always look crystal clear in the rearview mirror. Meaning right. yes. Looking back, things make a ton of sense. OK, that's what happened. I, and one of the other great examples, I think, is the gold trade in 2022. If you taught me, if you told me at the end of 2021, markets are going to get crushed next year, risk assets are going to be down, growth going to get killed, and inflation is going to be the main reason, I would say buy gold, go to the beach and don't worry about it because obviously that's the play. That's the gold. That's the inflation hedge. And mm -hmm. it got completely, I mean, completely didn't work because the dollar was so strong. It kind of ruined that whole idea. But so what should work is often kind of cloudy. And I think at the end of the day, you have to focus on what is working. So how do we make sense of that? For me, the way that I've tried to reconcile that is I still am thinking in general, value over growth, defense over offense, broadly speaking, because I feel like that's what the Fed's actions, regardless of what they're saying, that's what the Fed's action, that's the impact that that most likely has until they're done, until there's a finish line. And I think the problem right now is we have an undetermined uh, uh, runway. We don't know exactly how long the runway is. So it's not easy to see how close we are to the end of that. On the other hand, don't fight the tape means focus on what's working. And regardless of what don't yeah. fight the Fed means for you. You have to stick with the charts that are working. And I think, again, what's encouraging now is there are charts that are working. As long as you lean into uptrends and manage your risk effectively, I think you can navigate this sort of uh, environment okay. Yeah. So when you have like a more indecisive environment like that, where you're, you're having these kind of contradictory things going on, are you, are, are you kind of maybe raising a little bit more cash, maybe not having as much exposure and, and putting more kind of feelers out, more pilot positions out uh, at, at that time and say, okay, we'll, we'll, 
listen to the tape and we'll kind of go with what we're seeing, but we're not going to be super aggressive at this time because the market doesn't necessarily know what it wants to do. So how, how do we know? Yeah, so I sort of go with the core and explore model or sort of the, you know, the the, the satellite approach, right, which is yeah. sort of you have your core position, which for me is defined by your risk assessment. Do I, with the bulk of what I'm doing, do I want it to be exposed to risk or not? And so for me, it's still, I mean, I'm, I'm certainly not fully invested at this point. It's still fairly defensive in the positioning uh, that I would have. But the explore part is always active. And, and that is no matter what, take a shot at things that may work. And, you know, for me, that means seed positions, what I would call them on, on some, I mean, crazy long-term plays like cannabis stocks that are just mm -hmm. clearly still bad. But at some point, I think that theme is going to work. And so <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm waiting. And so I have an, a small position to just track ones that are working. Cryptocurrencies for me have, have been sort of a seed position, whether it's uh, in, in directly in cryptos or like the GBTC or something like that. Um, some of these, uh, you know, names like Alta and others started for me as, regardless of whether I think consumer discretionary is a bad place to be, the chart's working and I right. need to own charts that are, it's always a good time to own good charts. And so that has been that guiding principle with the explore part of it. Um, for me, what would I need to more, go more risk on? I think what we talked about in the last segment about the S&P getting above, not just getting to resistance, but getting through right. resistance yeah. Yeah. is a big question mark that has not been crossed off yet. When that happens, then I feel a little more confident about taking on much larger risk and just having exposure, you know, beta exposure to the markets as a whole. Mm -hmm. So we can probably transition now into a little bit more of the psychology part, because you yeah. have been bringing up, you know, little, little tidbits here and there of psychology, you know, like what, what you think and what you're seeing versus what you, you know, what should be happening, what you think should be happening and all of these. And, and look, it's, it's natural. You have to come up with a thesis uh, for your trading, you know, a guiding principle, if you will. Um, but where, where do you have to kind of draw the line in terms of recognizing when your thesis is wrong and when you're, uh, when the evidence is kind of piling up against you and what mm. kind of psychological things do you need to be aware of in your own self sometimes, you know, know yeah. thyself type, type thing in order to be successful as an investor? So there's a reason why my website's called Market Misbehavior, because I found that most investors, myself included, looking back at my investing history, it's like an it's like a comedy of errors in terms yeah. of mistakes you've yeah. made. And, and and arguably those mistakes are your biggest learning experiences. So a big part of what I try to encourage people to do is track your decision making, track what evidence you're using to make those those decisions and then make sure you spend time looking back. And a big part of where I think technical analysis is valuable is because for two reasons. Number one, it um, it takes the emotions out of your decision making, and a lot of our bad decisions are driven by emotions as opposed to the weight of the evidence. Um, you mentioned flying earlier, uh, Justin, and I'm I'm a student pilot, but my oh, my, okay. my firm, my LLC, is actually called Sierra Alpha Research, and Sierra Alpha is is basically a flight term for situational awareness, meaning uh -huh. it's pounded into your head to have a sense of where you're at relative to your surroundings. And one of the things I learned very quickly as a student pilot is pilots are experts at getting the emotion completely out of the way. And I, I know the first time I was uh, asked to do a stall uh, is basically, you know, they put you in the conditions and, and they ask, all right, what are you going to do? And I'll tell you what you do. You absolutely panic and, and <laughs> sweating and the whole I'm very thing, high up and the ground is like very far away fly anymore. And you stop going up and it's it's not comfortable. And so yeah. you have a very emotional reaction, but over time you learn 
this is the situation, this is what I'm in, so here are the steps I take to correct it. And as investors, that's kind of what you need to do. And, and the reason why you need those checklists, the reason why you need that, those uh, systems is to minimize emotions and avoid what we call behavioral biases or cognitive biases. And you hinted at some of those, Justin. The, the two that I would mention, one would be the endowment bias and the other one would be confirmation bias. And these are the two most common ones that I see uh, with mm -hmm. investors and not just newer investors, but seasoned investors, successful money managers for decades, I think still fall victim to these. Endowment bias is one of those where you hold losing positions way too long. Right. And if I ask you guys or ask any of our, our, our viewers or our listeners today, um, you know, name a time when a stock or an ETF that you held started going against you and you just held it just because mm -hmm. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. that is what endowment bias is, is basically you have an emotional attachment to that thing, that position, that thesis. And even though the evidence tells you very clearly not to own it anymore, you still own it. And I think Alphabet over the last two years, uh, you know, Goog is a perfect example of endowment bias, right? Look at the left part of that chart where the trend is up. Look at the right side, right? Look at 2021 versus 2022. So much change, right? We went from an uptrend to a downtrend. We went from being above the moving averages to below the moving averages. We went from outperforming to underperforming. We went from, you know, breaking through resistance to failing holds to hold support. So if you hold Alphabet during that period over the last 12 months, you, like you were missing clear evidence that something has changed, regardless of what technique you use. And so I think for endowment bias, for me, it's having a good routine of monitoring your positions, tracking when it hits certain triggers, right? So whether it breaks the 50-day or the 10-week moving average, mm -hmm. does it fail to hold support? Does it go from you know uh, making higher highs to lower highs? And, and having that rigor through your process, I think, is, is vital. The other one I would say is confirmation bias, which is I'm, you start with your conclusion and then you gather evidence which happens so often and it's so sneaky, you probably don't realize that you're doing it. But one of the common things is, you know, are you bullish or bearish? I'm bullish on stocks. Then you go and you read articles and you look at social media yes, and yes. all you do is reinforce what you are already going to do. And I, I think social media has a lot of positives, but one of the big negatives is the echo chamber effect, right? Yes. Particularly no. for investors. So my Twitter feed after using it for four or five years now is filled with growth oriented, technically oriented stock and ETF investors like that. Those are the things I've liked for years. Mm -hmm. So if I'm looking for a diversity of opinion, if I'm looking to shake myself away from my biases, I'm not going to find it on my Twitter feed. I'm going to find a bunch of reinforcement for what I was party, probably already going to do. So mm -hmm. the way you correct for that is to flip it, right? Gather evidence first and then look at and then then decide what the way of the way to the evidence is doing then look at your positioning too many times we start with our positions we start with our thesis and then we see if anything has changed and i think that sets you up for failure there you want to start with the weight of the evidence so the first chart i look at every morning is a five-year weekly chart of the s p 500 same chart every day mm -hmm. and i do that without looking at what's happening today whatever is happening with a particular stock or theme it's like, what is the long-term trend in stocks? Start there, mm -hmm. then go through all the other evidence. Look at different other, other indexes like the NASDAQ and the Russell. Look at sectors, look at global markets, look at currencies, look at commodities. Then at the very end of that, then I'll look at my portfolio and say, am I positioned for that evidence that I just showed is so clear? Um, and so I think, again, having good routines and having a good process to systematically go through that evidence, I think is the way that you minimize the negative impact of both those among many behavioral biases that unfortunately were hardwired to, uh, yeah. to be victim to. 
Yeah, it's the human element, right? It, and, it uh, very much. I mean, it's, it's what yeah. makes us human. There are a lot of good things about that, but right. unfortunately for our portfolio, not great for that. Yeah. 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 So w- w- when you were talking about the confirmation bias, immediately uh, one stock came to mind, especially in 2022, uh, Tesla, right? Mm-hmm. Where he, 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 here's a stock that you have that echo chamber left and right on Twitter. And you're seeing all these people who, who did really well in in a tesla in 2020 and now they're coming out with all the evidence of why it should be a triple from here or right. you know it should you know it should be a multi-trillion dollar company which if, in the in the end it might and and if it's their their strategy and they're much more longer term holders that's fine but i've always found that the that endowment bias has saved me over and over again especially with right. the tesla Tesla was like biggest position in 2020, but in 2021, once it stopped working, starting going through that checklist that you were talking about, breaking the 10-week line, breaking, I'm down more than 8% on those current positions I have, et cetera, et cetera. It just forced me out just by doing yeah. that instead of relying on all that evidence. I think that's 100% right. I, and I, I think it was probably in How to Make Money in Stocks. There's one of the O'Neill books, all of which I think are, are fantastic, but talking about that sort of that 8% exit, right? And, and yeah. again, I mean, it's a simple sort of shotgun approach. It's a it's a sledgehammer of a risk management approach, but versus nothing, it is it is absolutely vital, right? Having, I, you know, I was told all large losses begin as small losses. Yes. You can yes. have yes. some way to admit that you're wrong, which Justin, as you alluded to, we, we tend to not want to do. We, we are yeah. so good at justifying why we're right, even when the evidence is so clearly against that. Yeah. So having even a simple approach to taking risk off when a certain level is triggered, I always, I always describe that as a line in the sand. And yes. what I tell people is on your charts, treat your charts not as a painting, treat it as a conversation, as a workbook, right? This is your conversation you're having with the stock and have a big line that is a bright red and a bold face color. And if the price goes below this, I don't care how much I can justify it, I'm out, or at least I'm taking a good amount of it off the table. And, and to your point, Arush, I, that saved me some from probably what would have been some of my worst losses was just cutting even things that I liked where I thought the story was very good, but yeah. the timing was just not right. And it and it keeps you from, you know, holding on to things way too long. And again, we're hardwired to do that, unfortunately. Yeah. And, and I mean, that, that endowment bias, bias look, I, I always think of my dad. Uh, with this, you know, he had this really ugly orange lazy boy chair that that my mom <laughs> like eventually made him get rid of, and he, you know, he thought he would sell it at a garage sale, and that just wasn't happening, you know, because he, he thought this had more value than anyone else in the world, you know, oh, yeah. it was con- conformed to his body and all of that, and and Tesla, I think, is just the perfect example. I think there's so many people that were looking at that stock and thinking it had, you know, just just ignoring it going down and ignoring what it was doing to their portfolio because of how much value and gosh sometimes it was even worse if they owned a tesla because they were like but i love my tesla i drive my tesla and this is the best thing ever um you know so yeah i i always think of the 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 orange lazy boy and and gosh it was scratchy and ugly and everything um, well well, david when when you talk about the the endowment bias you know one one of the kind of the other stocks that came in mind because and i clearly remember this is back in 2000 2001 I bought Skechers at that point, and mm-hmm. you know there was a Skechers store, and this is, I was in Boston at that time too, and it, it was uh, on Newberry Street. They opened up a new Skechers mm. store. I'd go there like every day. Oh, there are people in the store. You know, Skechers should do well. <laughs> right, uh, and then, right. it, and I was up twenty five percent on the stock, 
you know, and, and this is where I started breaking all those rules that Bill talks about in the how to make money stocks book. <laughs> I didn't take my profits at that point. Then I round tripped it. Didn't didn't, you know, save myself at that point down 8%, didn't cut it right. down 20%, didn't cut it down 70%. Then I started to realize, oh, that's why they have that 8% rule. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> but after, but it was funny because it, those first few losses that I would take, yeah. Yeah, I would dwell on them. You know, it was mm. like your your ego's like hurt. You, you take it personally. I can't believe I did that. You know, I'm so stupid. Yeah. But after maybe this after game you, isn't for me. I yes, need to quit. Exactly. You know, right. But Absolutely. after you take the after you, you know, get past that, yeah. you just learn that you're gonna make a lot more mistakes than not in, in this game. So that and, and I've, spent, I've spent time in my career working with different types of players. And I spent earlier in my career it was a lot with institutional money managers and and um trading desks and hedge fund managers. And I would tell you what, what I've seen differentiates that cohort from individual investors, self-directed investors is a, a risk, a general awareness of risk, right? Because I think money managers tend to have a much better sense of where their risk exposure is and making yeah. sure that their bets are very intentional, where I find a lot of individual investors end up having unintended bets. Okay, it turns out you're all in on these two stocks. Did you realize right. that, right? It's like yeah, owning yeah. the XLY and not recognizing you are owning Apple and Tesla basically with that position right now. True. Yeah. So I think that's part of it. And the other one is recognizing and cutting your losses and recognizing when you're wrong, you just move on. And you are gonna have even stretches, months if not years where you're struggling but the point is over time, you keep repeating those lessons and those lessons won't be 100% right all of the time. There's no holy grail. But by following those routines, the 8% rule, thinking about position sizing and all that, those are the steps that allow you to invest, uh, live to invest another day, right? And 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 preserve capital when when you need to do that. And, and I think admitting when you're wrong is, is one of the toughest things for individuals to do in life, but particularly with our portfolio. And it's probably the healthiest thing you could do. Yeah. Absolutely. And, yeah. I, and I would say the one last thing I was that a lot of times having a group, having someone that you can explain when, and when I've had to explain a position or justify a position to someone else. That's when immediately, as you're saying so it, you're bad. like, I should not. Oh, like, why? <laughs> this is, like, you know, this is so not going to end well. <laughs> yeah, so I think, I think that that is another thing is find your tribe, find a, a people. So for me, the CMT Association has been a great way to sort of find that group that I can have those painful but uh, eye-opening discussions with. Mm -hmm. Well, and you know, when Arusha was telling uh, his, his sketcher story, I mean, it, it kind of gets back to that whole confirmation bias. When you start looking mm -hmm. at the stores and you're like, hey, look at how many people are here. And, and, and again, you're, you're yeah. looking at one store and you're not maybe looking at the entire entirety of the data. Um, so, you know, maybe we can kind of just, again, kind of get back to that a little bit. You mentioned social media, which again is very, uh, you know, the algorithms are working against you there, you know, to just <laughs> feed you, feed you what you want to hear. But what other, what other areas of confirmation bias do you just have to be careful of? Because, um, I, I know Charles Harris, uh, you know, one of our, one of the portfolio managers at O'Neill Global Advisors, you know, he, he would kind of share when, when he started listening a little bit too much to the, the earnings calls. You know, and, and just just looking for every little rosy piece of information. Um, yeah. What other kind of things can maybe give you a warning sign that confirmation bias is about to slap you in the head? Yeah. So for me, I, I talk a lot about routines and I talk mm -hmm. a lot about checklists and just what 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 do you use to make a decision? And those things you all described, I would guess you don't have a on, on a checklist of 
my 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 ideal decision on a on a position i can't imagine it involves and now search for things that back up my bullish story like that's definitely <laughs> not on there right that's something we add on our own so yeah. for me i literally with newer investors uh, with with financial advisors that are trying to formalize their investment process i literally have them write it down here are the seven yeah. questions you need to answer and and they might be different for you like it might be more earnings or more quantitative or more technical but it needs to be your own process and go through those steps. And with any new position, answer those questions and literally write it down. And at the end of that list, can you write? Yeah. Can you write buy or bullish? You know, can you justify it based on the, only what's on that page? And also do that with your existing positions, right? Because with a chart like Alphabet or like Tesla or innumerable stocks that we've seen over the last 12 months, Looking back, it's so obvious that they rotated, but at the time, it's not as easy as it seems right. now, right? That's that's hindsight bias, which is another one, which is our right. performance gets better and better as, yeah. as time goes on, right? We have this ideal me that performed beautifully and picked the bottom mm -hmm. and the top. But going through your existing position and literally listing out, would I put new money in it today? I always call it the new money question. If you had new money to work today, would you put it in this stock? And if the answer is no, then why do you have your old money there? Are there better opportunities you can find? And a lot of times we just we keep it in a position just because it's there and not because the evidence justifies it. And so I think literally writing it down or having a checklist that you follow is is vital, particularly as you're just getting started. Mm -hmm. So um, how much of this do you get into on your web website? You, you mentioned that, you know, marketmisbehavior.com yeah. is, you know, was specifically chosen by the, by you because of <laughs> all of these things in here. And it reminds me of uh, there's the book Misbehaving by Richard right. Thaler, one, one of my favorite books on behavioral economics. Yes. Uh, so, so interesting. So uh, do you get into like more of these checklists and things like that on your website? Yeah. And, and really, my my whole approach to technical analysis, I, I studied music and psychology as an undergrad. Music okay. is a separate thing. Maybe we'll have a, another podcast where we can dig into the relationship there. But there is okay. a tie in, I think. Uh -huh. But with psychology, the moment I learned that there is a set of tools that helped you understand psychology and how you make decisions and give you tools to minimize bad decisions, I was totally hooked. And behavioral finance was really more formative in 2000 when I was getting in the industry. I mean, it was coming out, but not very widely accepted. Now we've seen a lot of, uh, you know, people like Professor Andrew Lowe and others who have done so much to show how technical analysis is related to decision making and 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 these behavioral biases. I think charts are a great way to minimize those. Yeah. So a lot of what we do is, is what I call behavioral investing, which is connecting the behavior, how you are wired to make poor decisions with the investing part. What can you use to minimize those? And it, it, it always comes back to routines it comes back to how you spend your time to the order of operations, what order you use to actually go through an investment decision, how you track your investment decision, how you go back and review those later. Um, for me, of course, it's a very technically oriented process, but I think regardless of what inputs you use, having a regular process to prepare for your trade, to make the trade and evaluate your trades later, I think is probably the biggest area that investors can improve on because those are things that are all within your control. We spend way too right. much time on things that are outside of our control. Like what's the Fed going to do? What's the market going to do? There are things that are literally in our control, like what we watch, what we listen to, what we read and how we make decisions as a result of that. So that is very much where I focus uh, our energies. Yeah, that's great stuff. So when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about some of the stocks that are on David's radar as a result of his process and routine. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Trading Tesla, sometimes you get the bear. 
Sometimes it gets you. Single stock daily leveraged and inverse ETFs from Direction. Before investing, carefully consider a fund's objectives, risk, charges, and expenses contained in the prospectus at Direction.com. Read carefully. Okay, welcome back to Investing with IBD Podcast. It's Justin Nielsen here, your host, and joining me as always is Arusha Paris. He's a portfolio manager over at O'Neill Global Advisors. And as our special guest for our 200th episode, we have David Keller. He is chief market strategist at stockcharts.com. So David, uh, let's get into a little bit of what you've been uncovering. Um, and, and you've already alluded to uh, pretty much all of these stocks already. So we'll go ahead and start with the gold trade. GDX um, is an ETF that tracks the gold miners and certainly the miners, uh, you know, a lot of the miners, you know, not just gold, but a lot of miners have been looking strong lately. Um, you mentioned that the dollar, of course, was so strong in a lot of uh, the 2022. Now that that's come in, gold seems like it's back in favor. So talk a little bit about what process you use to get GDX on your radar and how you've been handling it. Yeah, it's it's so interesting because 2022 was all about a stronger dollar, and that has a number of ripple effects. One is certainly gold looks less and less attractive when the basically the denominator keeps going up, which is what happens when... Mm -hmm. The dollar's rallying. Also, non-U.S. stocks. So none of the ones that I'm sharing today are, are non-U.S. names, but you've certainly seen moves in like the you know European banks and 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 other places. And just the broader you know ETFs are starting to starting to so, show strength, just like gold, because the dollar is actually starting to, to come off of it. So if you if you believe that idea that the dollar is not done weakening versus other currencies, or at least stays muted to some degree then a chart like gold really has a lot of upside. Now, now gold traditionally is thought of as an inflation hedge, which over mm -hmm. time has certainly been the case, right? When inflation is an, is an issue, hard, hard assets tend to do pretty well. I tend to think of it as, you know, rock, paper, scissors. You're basically betting on rocks over paper with this sort of mm -hmm. trade, right? Thinking of uh, the material side of it. But what's most impressive to me on the chart of the GDX or really any of those component names like uh, Newmont or Agnico or Kinross or Royal Gold or or any of those, is just the fact that they've stopped going down and started going up. And for mm -hmm. me, that's enough to recognize this transition. So think of the chart of Alphabet, which I've mentioned a number of times because it's such a clear rotation from uptrend to downtrend. Invert that chart and you kind of have the chart of the GDX right over the last mm -hmm. uh, last six months or so. Mm -hmm. Clear downtrend, underperforming in a pretty big way going into the third quarter of last year, making consistent newer lows. But then look at how quickly that changed. And not only is it accelerating off the lows in October, it's really starting to, to, to outperform on a relative basis. And I, we haven't talked a lot about relative strength on this, but I, I think, you know, again, I, what I love about the O'Neill methodology is, is a focus on the importance of relative strength. For, for an equity investor, I think that is an incredibly important concept. A lot of individual investors probably undervalue and institutional investors certainly pay a lot of attention. We would focus a lot uh, on uh, on relative strength, because that basically tells you how you're doing relative to a passive benchmark. Am I earning the mm -hmm. right to be an active investor above just owning the spies or the diamonds or the cues and, and ignoring it? And what I like about the fact that the, the part of the, the chart of the GDX is while the S&P has failed to eclipse key moving average resistance, the GDX has broken through it. Well, you know, the S&P is failing to get above its December peaks. The GDX is kind of doing it. So right. I, I would give the benefit of the doubt to areas of the market like this. 
that are showing strong relative strength, that are showing strong absolute returns. And until proven otherwise, I think the trend in this case uh, remains pretty positive. I think it's a good a good bet here going at the beginning of the year. And also sort of the traditional sort of defensive properties of gold, I think in a period of uncertainty, I think there's an argument for that too. Mm-hmm. So David, where are the kind of like, so using GDX as an example here, uh, where are kind of the, the entries that you look for on, on a chart like this? Is it when yeah. it's getting past like the, the 26, 27 area, or is it more maybe after it's, it's starting to make higher highs and you're looking more for a pullback? How do you generally prefer to kind of start putting more money to action or more yeah. money to work in this? So absolutely. So I think the chart that you're showing here, the, the market smooth chart, I think is, is, is really combining the three general things I would tend to use. Um, the mm-hmm. first thing is just price and you know, Charles Dow 120, 130 years ago taught us, right, a downtrend versus an uptrend. An uptrend is a pattern of higher highs and higher lows, which is why I mentioned in an earlier segment, you know, I scan regularly for stocks making new three-month highs yeah. and stocks making new three-month lows. Because a lot of times it highlights charts like the GDX that had been in a clear downtrend, then sort of a consolidation phase in the third quarter. And then in the fourth quarter, really rotated higher and actually broke above previous resistance. That's when it would bubble up onto my screen of, of new swing highs. So I remember that back in October, November, when all of a sudden gold names start popping up and they had not been on my list for months and months. And I'm thinking, all right, this might be something different. This is something I want to pay attention to. Um, the second thing would be, um, is it outperforming on a relative basis? And, you know, gold, again, had been underperforming. I, the relative strength line that, that, that you have on, on markets is, is, a, is a great way to, to demonstrate that. Just the fact that it's gone from underperforming to outperforming. You know, if you, uh, Tom Boley, who's a, a stock charts contributor of, of ours, always used to say, if you want to outperform the S&P 500, you need to own things that are outperforming the S&P 500. <laughs> that, it's that simple. So <laughs> Sounds like Yogi Berra. If yeah. you want to <laughs> underperform, hold things where the relative strength line is going down, you will magically underperform the market. So focusing on those names where the relative strength is improving, I think is really important. And you saw that with gold going into the fourth quarter. Then the third thing is, is moving average analysis. I tend to use the 50 and 200 day moving averages. I use some exponential moving averages as well as more of a, a systematic trend following tool. And stocks and downtrends are below those moving averages. When stocks start rotating above them, I think it's worth uh, it's worth noting. And you kind of on the chart of uh, uh, GDX have sort of a bow tie effect, right? Where it's sort of all, you know, price below the moving averages, they all rotate higher. And that shows you how the trend uh, shifts. I, I'm always looking for what I call a change of character, which is a chart mm-hmm. going in one phase and then something's different. You don't know why necessarily, you don't know how, but you can just see that investors are treating it differently. I think gold is a great example over the last six months of that rotation to more of an accumulation phase. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and speaking of accumulation, you can see also on the volume. Right. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's, it's just yeah. a pretty decent volume coming into it over the last few months. Mm-hmm. Yep. Now you focused a lot on the technical side, but what about the fundamental side? I guess one of the things that is a struggle sometimes when you're dealing with something tied to a commodity, whether it's you know the oil and gas energy plays, um, you know gold, what have you, you've you've got this commodity that has all these influences, you know macroeconomic, the the, the dollar, and um, you know what's going on globally. Um, how do you kind of put any of that into your equation when you're making a decision on on investments that yeah it's a really related. really good question justin i think and particularly with materials with energy um with a lot of non-us markets like brazil or australia mm-hmm. right. there's a huge commodity component to it so you know what i've learned is in some ways to disconnect those so think about the technicals again you don't want to think of the technicals 
with that as part of your process, right? Think of them separately. What is the chart telling me? What is, what is the macro environment? What is the geopolitical environment? What, you know, what are all these other things? And then combine those in a meaningful way. And, and how do you aggregate them in, in, a, in a meaningful way? I think what we've seen with energy recently to, to you know, divert a bit, we've yeah. seen a scenario here recently where there, there have been stretches where, you know, energy usually follows uh, crude oil prices pretty well for a very logical reason why right? that's what is driving them. But recently they've become disconnected. Crude oil prices have remained fairly down while energy stocks have actually done done better. So it's not just analyzing the chart of crude oil that helps you understand it or the conditions around oil. It's also what's happening with the charts and how investors are, are treating them. So having said that, yeah, I think, you know, the macro thesis for something like gold is it's a dollar play probably in a lot of ways. And I think the strong dollar in 2021, that certainly changed. If you see that continuing or at the very least, you see the dollar not regaining this huge uptrend it had, I think it gives space for a lot of these markets that probably were artificially down because the dollar was so strong. Now the dollar weakening gives it room for these things to do uh, to do a lot better. And also just seasonally, right? I think given given the conditions that we're seeing and given the interest rate environment, these areas of the market probably more likely to do better than uh, than not. So I think it's a it's a decent bet here. Mm -hmm. Now, speaking of an area that kind of has defied expectations, I mean, for the longest time, retail, you know, it was mm -hmm. it was going to be like, look, Amazon is going to eat everybody's lunch. And if you've got a brick and mortar store, just just forget about it. Now, let's shift over to a store like Ulta uh, that has, you know, some a, a lot of services that it's provided. I mean, you can get your hair done there. You can get, you know, uh, your, your your makeup, your cosmetics. Uh, I, look, I have two daughters, so 21 and 17. So I, I know I know Ulta. Uh, I've been in many Ultas in my life. Um, so what what is it about Ulta that has kind of defied expectations in terms of the retail play? And how did this get on your radar? What's so funny and what I what I like about this play, I sort of when I was thinking about what stocks to share with you with you guys, I this was one because I think it it bucks the trend of what you would think should work, right? Given yeah. all of these headwinds, given where the benchmarks are, I would not expect retail names like Alta to look very right. good. The chart does not care what you think it should look like. Exactly. And the market doesn't care really what your opinion is. The chart's going up. And it, and it's obviously not just Alta. I think Alta represents a number yeah. of names, footwear names that have had good yeah. runs. Uh, other apparel names that have had done, done very well. And, and uh, there, there, there are a number of those uh, that, that Decker's right comes to mind mm -hmm. as, as charts mm -hmm. that are they're starting to work a little bit. What I like about the chart of Alta is it looks very different than um, the broader market, right? Mm -hmm. The indexes have a certain look to them. There are certain stocks that look very similar to the S&P. This is one that very much does not. And particularly in a bear market phase, focusing on areas of the market that actually look very different in a positive way, I found to be a pretty successful approach. So when Alta is threatening new highs, you know, in the summer, when the markets are, you know, threatening new lows, when when it's following through to the upside while the benchmarks are, are stalling out at resistance, that's where it gets my attention. I think for Alta in particular, I think the breakout that you saw um, in, uh, in, uh, in August and September was pretty encouraging. We then drew down and, and had quite a bit of a, of a drawdown, but stayed above uh, support. We sort of uh, settled into that range and then broke out to the upside. And I think getting above that swing high in September was incredibly powerful. Then this has a classic breakout sort of setup where you break. I feel like I'm drawing these trend lines, Arusha. This is awesome. <laughs> it's like you're you in my it, head. You but... think that and Arusha will. <laughs> <work well. laughs> it's a little scary, but I, I can go with it. So it, what you're drawing is absolutely right. So, so that you broke out you pull back and retest the breakout level. That is, that is a classic sort of trend following technique of 
emerging strength, you pull back to the breakout level, and then you follow through to the upside. And I think that's what's most encouraging going into uh, into January. Why I think it's a, it's a really um, a compelling name here is because it's broken out, retested, and then followed through. And, and, and for me, that combined with the relative strength, which is going to be strong when a stock is making new highs when the markets are not, uh, overall makes it a compelling play. Again, in an area of the market that given what the market overall is doing, I would be skeptical of retail. The chart of Alta is telling you that it's working. And, and I think that's what's the most, the most convincing argument. You know, it's, a, it's amazing at how orderly the last few months for Alta has yeah. been. Yeah. where it has just been a, a almost a perfect type of uptrend and, and a classic pullback, as you said, right back to the breakout area. And then it's resuming almost in an ABC type of fashion there. But before that, it, it was just, it would try to get out and come back in, try to get out, come back in, right? Yeah. Over and over again. And so you had this kind of change of character here. And it's almost another kind of psychological kind of factor where the market's going to keep fooling you. And then the, that time where you don't try it again, right. that's when it goes. Yeah. And I think, and, and we've, again, what, what concerns me about a chart like the S&P is that it's attempting to get, it's attempting to follow through, but it never follows through. It, it yeah, trades yeah. to resistance, but not through resistance. The chart of Alta did that a number of times, right? It, it had attempted breakouts that never really followed through. Then something changed. And I think focusing on those areas where you actually get a breakout and you get what I what's called a follow through, not just a one day breakout, but then showing that buyers are coming in, showing that the buying power is out, outweighing the selling pressure. That's what the chart tells me. It, it really is more, you know, describing the psychology of, of investors and how they've uh, they followed in. But people are now believing in this in the story. And you're seeing that by additional demand driving the price higher. So I like the fact that that's happening again, despite what the broader markets are doing. This is a great example of where I think an opportunistic play is good in any environment. Focus on good charts, despite what the macro environment may be. And to your point, I mean, there were a lot of, it seemed like those breakouts that were immediately followed by fake outs, you know, mm. it would break out and then, you know, a day, it, sometimes not even a day later, uh, yeah. you're you're right back into the base, and and it mm -hmm. kind of is, you know, almost like what you're saying with the S and P 500. It's like, hey, you know what? I really haven't changed my character yet. You know, I'm yeah. I'm I'm still I'm still the same S and P 500 that I've been for the last year, getting up to that line and then getting turned away. So, yeah, um, yeah. Are, are you finding more of those, I guess, breakouts that are getting the follow up uh, buying at this point? To a degree, it right? like it was happening. Yeah, and I think you're seeing you're seeing more and more altas. And I think your chart of the stocks making, uh, you know, the number of stocks making new highs is evidence of that, right? You're seeing you're starting to see some follow through, not in enough of the names with enough weight to drive our benchmarks to the point yeah. where we probably get really bulled up on on things. Uh, but there are opportunities out there. And I and, and honestly, if there's one thing I learned um, among many from from studying uh, William O'Neill's writings and his work over time was the idea of not being afraid to buy strength. I mean, I yeah. was taught, as many of us are, buy low, sell high, buy weakness, buy beaten right. down names. And there are times when that's going to work. But I have found buy high and sell higher is a really good approach. And it tends to work over the long haul. And charts like Ulta, you know, people I'm often asked, like, did I miss it? Like the moment it breaks out, did I miss it? I'm like, right. you didn't even kind of it like that. This is the type of thing we want to look for. We want to look for things where something's different and buyers are coming in and pushing the price higher. And I think that the most bullish thing the market can do is go up, is what I was taught by uh, my legendary technical analyst named Paul Montgomery. He wrote a, a newsletter 
called Universal Economics for over 50 years. And that was one of his quotes he shared the one time. And I think that's great. It's like the, the fact that the stock is going up is not a bad thing. That's not something to be afraid of. That's something to be embraced and followed. That's the essence of trend following. I think Alta is a good example. And, and how many examples have we seen in the last 10 years of strong charts getting stronger over time? And so I'm never be afraid to buy a, a breakout on a chart like this. I don't know. Now, on the flip side, is Alta extended? Because, you know, another thing that Bill would talk about is, hey, there's a right time to buy and there's a late time to buy, you know? Yeah, so. and so, and that is 100% true. And I think that's a concern for some of the names that we were talking about, right? Some of the stocks that have had those runs, not to jump too far ahead to the home builder that I'm going to share with you, but this is a group that's had a really good run, right? So, and I think that's a concern with some areas of the market that have had really nice moves to the upside. Uh, energy obviously got into that. Uh, into, into that condition where it had such a run, all of a sudden it becomes pretty extended from a base. And that's when you want to start thinking about, is it a hold? Is it, I, do I keep money there? Absolutely. Do I want to put new money in this? I'd rather look for actionable buys. And that's how I try to differentiate it. Stocks that have you know, pulled back and retested those breakouts. I think that was the ultimate entry point for a chart like Alta. Yeah. So let's go ahead and move over to DR Horton, uh, ticker symbol DHI on this. And just as a reminder, you know, uh, David was talking about how Arusha was getting in his head, drawing the lines on the chart. And you can always look at the video of these charts at www.investors.com slash podcast. If you're listening to this and you want to check out some of these charts later and see exactly where we were drawing these lines. But let's go ahead and take a look at DHI. Um, as you said, you know, no one would have said, OK, look, we're going to raise rates a bunch. Uh, mortgage rates are going to be, you know, higher than, uh, you know, people remember for a long time. Again, historically, not bad, but, you know, they were they were getting over 7%, which is uh, certainly not not the attractiveness, especially with the home prices being as high as they were. And yeah. yet here we are, home builders uh, said, hold my beer, and they just, you know, <laughs> take off anyway. So what's what's your uh, assessment of DR Horton? Yeah, and what, and what I like about this chart in particular, as you're, as you're looking at it, I mean, you look at uh, what happened through the course of 2022, particularly that peak in, uh, in, in June, and then the peak in August, right? So you had these number of sort of rallies, and, and I would think that left third of the chart is more of the distribution phase. All of a sudden, you have these attempts to, to, to sort of make some gains in the middle of the year over, over the summer. Then look at how different it started to appear going into October and November. Uh, and I think that gap in November where you got above the uh, August high was uh, incredibly powerful, right? Yeah, so we saw a lot of volume react, come right? in, nice gap above resistance, just this classic basing pattern. Um, and looking for stocks that are exiting basing patterns to the upside has been a tried and true uh, stock picking methodology. And, and I'm always going to want to look for these. This is when it popped up on my new uh, three month high screen. This is when all the home builders start to do it. They'd already gotten above in, in, in DHI's case gotten above its 200-day moving average. Relative strength was starting to improve off of the lows. So not only was it doing well, um, as, um, not only were the markets doing well off of the October low, this is a group that was actually outperforming. Now you actually follow through to the upside, which is what's so so compelling. Not just that you get to resistance or through resistance, but you follow, you, you follow through. What I like about this chart and why I like it as an example today is it's going to do one of two things, either of which I think will be a great example for everyone listening, everyone watching. It's either going to be a great lesson in money management skills, because if the trend exhausts and the trend reverts, you need to exercise your money management. And, and this is a group that's had a pretty good run off of the lows. And I, and I totally get that. I think that's the risk for a lot of 
uh, a lot of uh, a lot of names that have had a pretty good run, uh, particularly earnings season, which we're kind of getting into the to the meat of it. Earnings very quickly can change the configuration of a of a chart. Look at Goldman Sachs this week versus right. Morgan Stanley, two binary outcomes on the same day uh, with earnings. So I think that's um, certain certainly something you want to you want to be uh, be wary of. Um, but in general, I think it's it's important to give the benefit of the doubt to established uptrends, and that's what I see with the home builder name. So. DHI is one I'm highlighting here. I think Lennar, NVR, Pulte, they all have very similar constructive patterns. Um, the ITB is probably a good ETF to play that space if you're if you're looking more of a of a diverse play within that within that fairly narrow group. But but overall, I think that this is a group that has had a nice breakout that I would I would give the benefit of the doubt uh, to further upside there. Yeah, I almost feel like uh, this DHI chart should be in a technical analysis book. I mean, it is a, a almost a perfect chart to illustrate a lot of the concepts that, that you were just talking about. And, it, and, it, and in the end, it had that powerful, powerful breakout on the earnings, huge, massive volume, uh, strong price surge right through resistance, came back and tested it a little bit on, on low volume. And then it just kept this nice, steady uptrend going. Yeah. And in general, I mean, I think, again, it, it goes back to the basics. One of the first thing on my own checklist is what I call Dow theory, right? Which is, mm -hmm. is right. it in an uptrend or a downtrend? That is the very first question before you answer anything else or get really cute with different indicators or different evidence is like, is it going up or down? And a lot of times we miss that real basic foundational part of what the evidence is sharing us, right? And, I, and again, I think, you know, you guys do such a great job with some of the ranking systems of, of focusing on strength, focusing on price strength and relative strength and institutional ownership. And I think a chart like this that is that is in an established uptrend, the first question is a big check mark, right? It's in an uptrend. So from there, it's all about how do I play it? What's the right entry point? Where do I want to take profits? But it starts with, is the chart working? And I think the home builder group so far has been working until proven otherwise, I'd give the benefit of the doubt to the, to the trend. Now, you, you mentioned earnings. Um, so we do have earnings coming up for a lot of the home builders. We already have KB Homes, uh, you know, uh, on the other side. Uh, and you know, it, it came in a little bit after its earnings. Um, so is that is that something that gives you any pause, uh, you know, kind of buying something right before earnings? Or is that kind of a, a non-issue? And again, you give it the benefit of the doubt and you, you, you take your shot. Yeah, so I, I, it's a big question mark. Right? And I think particularly this earnings season, because I think this is where a lot of companies are, are starting to maybe acknowledge or, or recognize the long-term implications of inflation, the long-term implications of you know, coming out of COVID, whatever that's going to look like and, and and so forth. So I think this is certainly, you know, has the chance to be a, a significant move one way or the other. When when you're going into earnings, you know, for me, for example, I tend to I tend to think of the, the chart as the primary indicator. As long as the chart remains strong, then it's good. So if it gaps down, if it has a big miss, I have my stops in place. I have the level at which I'm OK taking it. And, and it's it's clearly defining your risk. Um, so, you know, is there a chance tomorrow that it goes from 95 to 25? That is theoretically possible, but I would say probably there will be some levels along the way that, that the price would, would give me a clear signal that it's no longer working. So certainly I, I think one of the most important things, particularly now in the coming weeks, is knowing when your holdings, when the companies are reporting earnings. Uh, but for me, does it does it dramatically change? Would I take something off just because earnings are coming out? Absolutely not. I think that the price is going to best reflect the sentiment going into earnings and then most importantly coming out of there. And I think that's that's where we're going to learn a lot about the sustainability of this market uptrend, not just with home builders, but with with uh, stocks in general around uh, around earnings here. 
Yeah. And and again, I think you, you, you said it already, but kind of having those uh, different scenarios in mind. Okay, if this happens, then I do this. If this happens, then I do this. Almost like, again, back to your pilot training here. Um, yes. You know, if, if, if these things happen, you have your checklist of what to do. And I yeah, think that's it, important for investing too. It's so often that I feel like investors get surprised, right? So they, it's, it's something happened and they just, they, they didn't imagine that that could happen. Right. <laughs> and, I, and it's funny, I, again, working with institutional investors, working with, with guys of fidelity, we would always think about probabilistic outcomes. What's the most mm-hmm. likely scenario Home builders beat earnings. This goes away. This is where things head. This is my price target. But there are also other scenarios that you need to lay out. I, I think for the broader market as well. What happens if and when the S and P hits forty three hundred in the next six weeks? What if it gets to five thousand in six months? What if it gets down to thirty two hundred in the next eight mm-hmm. weeks? All of those are possible scenarios. Some more likely than others, but. Right. I would be thinking of those now and thinking about the probabilities so that no matter what happens, you've planned for it and you have a a game plan in place for some of those unimaginable scenarios. They're very imaginable. You just have to force yourself to to think through them today. Yeah. David, uh, just one one last question very quickly here. Do you miss those really large charts in the the Fidelity chart room? So much so. And it's funny where I'm actually in in the stock charts headquarters there, but, but in my home office, I've actually, I've tried to, chart roomify my office as oh, much as possible so i have four you know decent size i don't have the big 13 foot you know <laughs> yeah. charts we used to have but i very much miss those because it provided such a great long-term perspective which i feel yeah. like is such it's the toughest thing to do is disconnect from the short-term movements and think about it. i i very much uh, i miss those uh to a great degree arusha yeah yeah. Well, especially again, when you have so many things kind of yelling at you, you know, pay attention to me, pay attention to me yeah. to kind of take yeah. that step back and look at the uh, the big picture there is sometimes so important, so useful. Well, uh, David Keller, uh, such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining us on our 200th episode. Uh, it was it was great having you. Yeah. Congrats on 200 episodes, you guys. Here's to 200 more. And uh, I'll certainly keep watching. Thanks, you guys very much. Right. And, and as a reminder, uh, you can find out more information on David Keller from his website at marketmisbehavior.com. And I don't think I mentioned this, but his Twitter is a good follow right there. That's at D Keller, K-E-L-L-E-R-C-M-T, because he does have that CMT designation. So uh, that's a good follow on Twitter. So uh, again, thanks again. <laughs> thanks, guys. Cheers. Okay, and on our show next week, we're going to have Joseph Fami back on the show. He is a managing director at Zor Capital, one of the crowd favorites of our podcast. So it'll be great to have him uh, come on and get his take on what's happening with the macroeconomics, something that he usually doesn't look at, but more importantly, the technical items that are always so, so forefront in our minds. So thanks a lot for watching us on our 200th episode. Uh, Thank you, Arusha, as always, for being here, and we'll see you next time. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review our podcast if you haven't already. We'd really appreciate it. You can also send us your questions and comments to investingpodcast at investors.com. We would love to hear from you and may use your comments on an upcoming episode. This podcast is for informational and educational purposes only, and nothing should be construed as a recommendation to buy, hold, or sell any securities. Make sure to consider consulting with your financial advisor before making any investment decisions.